I've always loved reading the book of Judges. And we see in the book of Judges this pattern, this ongoing pattern that repeats itself throughout the book. And here's the pattern. God's people are faithful. God's people walk away. The Lord then gets their attention by allowing uh, another nation to attack them. And then the people come to the end of their rope and they realize there's nothing we can do. And they cry out to the Lord. And the Lord raises up a judge, a leader, in that moment to lead them in battle to save the nation. A little while later, the nation is excited about God again. A little while later, they turn their backs on God again, and they start going their own direction. And we see this pattern repeat itself and repeat itself until we come to the judge who is called Samson. And what was happening, and I want you to hear this because I think it's a picture of what happens in every generation, and it's happening in our generation today here in the United States. Here's what, here's what happened. The Philistines were the enemy to God's people. They realized that they didn't have the military might to conquer Israel. And so what they did was they acted like they were friends to Israel. And what they were doing was trying to completely change the culture of Israel. Israel was not aware that this enemy was encroaching on them. They weren't aware of what the enemy was doing. They were changing the culture. They were changing the life of the nation. They were changing the worship of God's people. And they were, they were beginning to wander again away from God. But they didn't recognize it. They didn't realize what was happening. And so God raised up Samson. Now what is unique about Samson is he never led an army. Because nobody would follow him. He never led an army because the people didn't realize that their life, their culture, their faith was at risk. They didn't see it. They didn't understand what the Philistines were doing. They didn't understand that the, stand that the Philistines were an enemy. What they thought was that the Philistines were their friends. And so Samson begins to start picking at the Philistines. He begins to attack the Philistines. And the Philistines start getting angry. And so they demand that Israel find Samson, bind Samson, and bring, them, bring him to them. And so 3,000 Israelite troops find Samson. They arrest him. And they bring him, and they turn God's instrument, God's man, over to the Israelites, I mean to the Philistines. Now the Philistines couldn't handle him. And God gave him great power and great strength, and Samson was able to free himself. But when I read that story, here's what I think. Every, every culture since the time of Jesus, has been at risk of losing 
our Christian culture losing our Christian faith, losing the purity of our worship of God. Every generation is at risk because we often don't see the danger. Often our culture is being transformed and changed around us. And instead of holding firm for what God teaches in his word, instead of holding firm to his values, we are conformed, we are shaped into the image of our culture rather than transforming our culture to be more like Christ. And that's the culture of the church as well as as we live today, the culture of America. We're in a series that we are calling Questions Worth Asking. And we began this series last week and we talked about what the Bible teaches about politics and government. And this sermon this morning, this question is, how do we respond to a culture that's moving further and further from the ways of God? It's not unlike the time of Samson. We have seen our culture dramatically shift in the last 20, 25 years. We have seen that the culture has moved in many ways further and further away from the purposes of God. Now, when I say our culture, friends, I'm not just talking about the culture of America. I'm talking about the culture of his church. And in many studies that are done, we find that there really is very little difference between how we live as Christians and the culture of the United States. And so this is a powerful sermon for each and every one of us this morning. It is relevant for each of us because we're going to talk not just about the American culture, but the church culture as well. Because we are at risk. And you know what, friends? This is true of every generation. Where we are more susceptible to being transformed by culture than we are at actually transforming culture. So, if you're with me on this, let's look at the first thing I want you to see. I want to begin by looking at an overarching principle. We are citizens, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. That is what we are, and, and I'm going to lay this foundation because it's foundational to all that we're going to talk about this morning. But I was thinking about four ways that we can respond to our culture. Four ways that we can respond to the American culture, to the culture of a church that is drifting from the values of the kingdom of God. The first is we can conform. We can conform. That means that we can just change and be like our changing culture. Believe what our culture believes, even when it's in conflict with biblical teaching and biblical values. A second option that we have is that we can check out. We can just check out and say, I'm not getting involved. I'm just going to check out. I'm not going to engage. And this, you see this happening in a lot of churches where the church just kind of, just kind of grabs onto each other and they, they don't engage the world at all. There's a third option, and that uh, option is we combat the culture. This approach is more antagonistic. We engage the culture, and sometimes, as we talked about last week, that is appropriate. We have to 
combat the culture, but in a way that might be different from what you're thinking now. And the fourth option that we have is that we engage and we encounter the culture. This is what I see as the prominent perspective of Scripture. So, we are, the overarching principle of what we're talking about this morning is we are to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. Let me read to you this passage. It's extraordinary. For as I have often told you before, Paul's writing, and now I tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, I want you to hear this. First of all, Paul does not see those who oppose the church as their enemies. This is what we often do today as Christians. We see those who oppose us as our enemies. Paul does not see that. In fact, in the context of what he's talking about, he, as he thinks about their destination, as he thinks about what's going to happen to them in their lives, he's moved to tears. He's broken for them. Now, he could be broken as well for the havoc they're, they're going to create as enemies of the cross. But too often, we see the enemy as the people. As I talked about last week, as we talked about last week, Trump is not our enemy. Biden is not our enemy. These politicians are not our enemy. And we need to stop seeing them as our enemy. We need to see, and as you'll see in a moment, that our enemy is something different. And so what we need to do is we need to understand we should be broken about what's happening in our culture. Yes, righteous anger, but our hearts should be moved to the point of being broken to bring tears because we are so broken in our heart for what we see happening in our culture and the damage it's doing to the people who are involved and engaged. That's a very different perspective. And then we read on. Here's what Paul, uh, Paul says. He says, this is why I'm in tears. Their destiny, those who oppose Christ, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. And when we do that, when we live that kind of life, it impacts not just our eternal destination, it impacts our life in this world. We lack the joy, the perspective, the peace that comes from a right relationship with the living God. When we see people who oppose, we should be moved to tears because of what they are forfeiting, what they are losing in their lives. And when we do that, friends, our response is much different. It might be more antagonistic and lead to conflict, but it's driven by a heart of love, a heart of mercy, a heart of compassion, a heart that is broken. So here's what I want you to see. Paul goes on to say, but our citizenship, your citizenship, my citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, he's in control, will transform our lowly bodies so that we will see the glory of God. Friends, what we're going to talk about this morning is founded upon this principle. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. I hold a dual citizenship. 
I was born physically in the United States of America, and at that moment, I was an American citizen. But at 16, I was adopted by the living God and became a citizen of the kingdom of God. My citizenship in the kingdom of God always takes priority. Here's, so what do we do about this? I want to mention quickly five things. Number one, look honestly at your own life. Ooh, I hate that, don't you? I'd rather look at your life. But this is what we do. We're so quick to point out where everybody else is failing. We're so quick, and I do it, to point out where everybody else is living short. But if we are going to respond to culture, we need to come with humility, understanding that we too are broken people. And we are coming with a heart of love, helping them to see the grace, the goodness, the mercy, the compassion of the God that we love. And so I'm driven and motivated by humility, understanding that I too am a sinner in need of God's grace. I too make mistakes. I too hurt people without meaning to. And so friends, I look first at my own life. And so as we saw a few weeks ago in this verse, search me, God, know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me to the way everlasting. Oh God, look at my life. If revival is in America is going to happen, it's going to begin with you and me coming clean before God, asking God to transform our lives. Our life should be a living witness to the world of what God can do in the life of a human being. And when God is transforming us, he empowers us to be an example and then to be transforming agents in the world. But it begins with me looking at my life and saying, oh God, where am I conforming to the world? Where am I becoming like the world? Where do I need to repent? Where do I need to change? Where do I need to come on my knees before you? Where do I need to go and apologize to others and make my relationship right with them? Where do I need to be transformed? It begins with me. It begins with you. Do you know that revival that has happened, the great awakenings that have happened in the United States have always begun with the people of God? The great revivals always begin in the church. And then it flows into the culture and into our nation. Friends, if we want to see America transformed, it begins with you and me. Being real before God. Because we read this great challenge. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Don't become like the world. Be transformed. Be different by the renewing, the making new again of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. How are we as individuals trans, being transformed by culture as opposed to being transformed by the word of God. We need to begin with our own hearts. I love this definition of worldliness. 
by David Wells. This is, this is a powerful statement. He says, it is that system. This is what Paul's talking about when he says, don't be conformed. To what? To worldliness. It is that system of values in any given age which has as its center our fallen human perspective, our sinful perspective. Seeing the world through our own self-centeredness, seeing the world through our own pride, seeing the world through the eyes of that which we want for ourselves. That perspective displaces God and his truth from the world and which makes sin look normal and righteousness seems strange. Is that where we're at as a world, as a culture today? Yes, in many ways. And it's true for every culture. That which is wrong looks normal. That which is right looks strange. It thus gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong, and for that reason, makes what is wrong seem normal. This is not easy. It means we have to know the word of God and we have to allow the spirit of God to transform us first. And then as God is in the process of transforming us, suddenly we become his witness with humility in our culture. Here's a second thing that I want you to see. Pray for our leaders. You know, friends, I was really convicted by this because what I noticed in my life I was spending more time criticizing leaders than I was praying for leaders. I was spending more time pointing fingers at leaders than I was praying for them. But remember the heart of Paul. He was moved to tears as he considered what the, those who were opposing Jesus, what their destination was and the damage that they were doing. He was moved to tears that brings love and humility and compassion to our culture as we respond to our culture. And friends, we're reminded of this reality. Our battle is not against people. Paul didn't say they were the enemy. He said their acts were enemies, uh, was the enemy to what God was doing. Their acts driven by a culture that had a worldview. Friends, Listen to what it says. In Ephesians 6, 10 to 20, we're being charged to put on the full armor of God. That's how we are to live in this world. Listen to what we read in this, just verses 10 to 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. It's not my power, not your power. We're to be strong in the Lord. And then he says this, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the culture? Is that what he's saying? No. People, governors and, and presidents, no. Against the devil's schemes. It is Satan who works in culture to move culture away from God, knowing that many of us of faith will follow culture rather than following, following God's truth. It is the plan of the Philistines. It's nothing new. It's what the Philistines tried to do. And when God awoke the nation through Samson, the nation stood, and, they, and revival happened in the land. 
but it began with God's people. Friends, as we stand today, our battle is not against what we often think our battle is against, people who are standing against the cross of Christ. That is not our battle against them. Our battle is ultimately against Satan. And when we pray against Satan, then we see God move in ways that are dramatic to transform our nation, our culture, both in the church and outside the church. We read on, it says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. What is flesh and blood? Flesh and blood are people, humans. Our struggle is not against them. Now, this is being written at a time when Christians were being persecuted. This is at a time in a culture that was far worse than the American culture today in terms of of what we would call sin and being out of control. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, and the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That is our battle. And if we are spending more time critiquing and criticizing our leaders and other people in our culture than we are praying for them, then we are not standing in the way that God wants us to stand, and it is a battle we will lose. We have to be girded in prayer, praying for our leaders and praying against the work of Satan and his fallen angels to move our culture in a direction that opposes the purposes and values of God. Here's the third thing that I want you to see, and that is we are to speak the truth in love to those who disagree with biblical truth. We are to speak the truth and love. We are to share the truth and love. Listen to what we read here. Paul writes this in um, Ephesians 4, 14 and 15. He's talking about how we grow, as we're growing in our faith, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves. What is he talking about? He's talking about the wind of culture. being pushed in this direction, going in this direction, never being settled in what we believe because we're being driven by the beliefs and and the purposes of our culture. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, We will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. What is he saying? In the church, in the church, we need to speak the truth in love to one another. Now, what does that mean? It means when we speak, we speak out of love and compassion and mercy and humility to those who are living in a way or leading in a way that dishonors Christ. It means that we are to come and to speak in a way that is winsome, that is passionate, not angry, not driven, although there's a righteous anger. When we see Jesus display a righteous anger, it's to the church, not to the culture. And so what we see here 
is that we are to respond in a way that honors Christ. A couple weeks ago, I had a um, message on my machine from a well-intentioned person in our community. I don't know who it is, who the person is, but they were trying, they, um, they wanted me to get our troops together here at Cross Point and to go and to, um, uh, specifically me, to preach at, uh, at uh, a gay parade and tell them that they are an abomination to the Lord. That is a way to respond, I guess. Uh, I don't see that. I, I don't see what that accomplishes. They need Jesus. And we're going to be talking this summer about how we do this in a way that is open and honest, but is driven by love, is driven by compassion. I'm not saying she wasn't, but I just don't see the effectiveness of something like that. In my last church, we had a number of people who were part of a team that would go to concerts at the Van Andel Arena in Grand Rapids, Michigan. That was the place. And they would go, and boy, you had some pretty wild bands and with pretty wild crowds that were pretty far from what you and I would um, think of, of maybe dress appropriate and all of that. But they never went. They went to serve, and they went to engage in very respectful ways. They went to talk. And they saw great fruit. They would hand out food to the people waiting in line. They would hand out water to the people waiting in line. They would serve. And they would engage in conversation with people. And people's hearts would open. And they would tell them about Jesus. Our goal is not just to tell people they're wrong. Our goal is to tell them the difference that Jesus can make in their life. And when we come understanding that we too are broken, sinful people in need of the blood of Christ, our attitude changes, our perspective changes. And we'll talk about that in a few weeks. And then look at this from 1 Peter. Show proper perspect to who? What does it say? Everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor, honor the president, honor the government. Show proper respect to everyone, to everyone, proper respect. Now that doesn't mean we're silent, that doesn't mean we don't tell the truth, we do. But we do it in a way that honors Christ. And then, number four, engage in the political system with wisdom. Friends, God has, pl- has planted us in a democracy. Praise be to him. We don't live in a dictatorship. We live in a representative government. And so we, who are of age, have the privilege of voting. Every Christian should vote, even when they know, even when they know that they're going to lose the election. We should honor Christ by voting with wisdom, looking at the issues, looking at the people and asking the question, Lord, give me wisdom. 
how should I express my vote? Every Christian should vote. Every one of us should vote. If you're not, if you're not now registered to vote, register to vote. And, and engage in the system. Write letters. Sit down with people on the city council or in, in our, our state and federal representatives. Share with them in a very respectful manner your position and the things that you're concerned about. Friends, when we come with a club, we get pushed to the side. We need to have our voice heard. We need to have our voice respected. And we do that when we show respect to others. We may totally disagree with them. But they are people that God longs to have to know Christ and be part of the kingdom of God. I know that this is stepping on toes and... Um, I'm okay with that. Listen to what it says. Moses chose some wise, understanding, and respected uh, men from each of, each of the tribes. He asked them to choose some wise, understanding, respectable men from each of your tribes, and I will set them over you. What, how does he describe the leaders? Wise, understanding, respected. Wise, understanding, respected. What a great criteria. Wise, understanding, respected. And we need to engage in the political system in a way that will make an impact. Friends, it's not just about me feeling good about myself that I stood up and, and made a point. It's about how I do it as well. And if I do it in a way that's respectful, there's more chance that we're going to be heard. If I do it with humility, understanding that I've got my own issues and I struggle with things and I'm a sinful person. I am a fellow traveler and there's more, I'm more apt to be heard, to be listened to. The goal is, to, is transformation, not just speaking. The goal is transformation, not just having my voice being um, heard. I want to see it change. How do we change? How do we bring change? That's what matters. The last thing I want to say is this. Educate the next generation. Educate. Of all that I've shared, besides prayer, this is the most important point. This is the most important point. See, what happened was we come to Judges, the book of Judges, chapter 2, and here's what happened. We stopped discipling the next generation. We stopped training the next generation in biblical truth. We stopped telling them of the great God that we worship. So what happened? Big surprise. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, died. Another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. They didn't disciple. They didn't raise up the next generation in faith. Then the Israelites, here's, and here's where it leads, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals, the false gods. 
I want to challenge you on this Father's Day. Dads, grandpas, we need to be more committed than ever at discipling the next generation. We need to be working to ensure that the next generation knows God, knows his values, knows his teaching, and is seeking to live a life that reflects his heart. What will change the next generation? Our investment in the next generation. And when we invest in the next generation, culture changes. This generation rises up, and they have a different set of values. They have a kingdom perspective, and the world, the world is different. I am passionate about the discipleship of our children. It happens first and foremost, friends, in, in the home. Moms and dads and grandparents and aunts and uncles, it's our responsibility to invest in them. And church, it's our responsibility to invest in them. We had a vote yesterday with our elders and deacons, our council, to approve bringing to the congregation the charge that we need to build another building for children. We have run out of space. We have kids that we can't receive, can't be a part of our program on a Wednesday night because we don't have the room. We need to make the space for our children because the future of our nation and our culture depend on it. We need to raise up a next generation that loves the Lord, that is passionate about the Lord, that knows the Lord, and knows the teaching of God's word. Did you know that 85% of American Christians met Jesus between the ages of 4 and 14? 85%. How do we transform culture? We need to play the long game. We need to see into the future and say, you know what? We're going to invest because we understand how important this is, not just for the church, but for the community, for the nation, and for the world. That excites me. That excites me. Let's pray. And you'll be hearing more about this in the next month, okay? I'm not going to just leave you there. You'll hear more about it in the next month. Stay tuned. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for the things that you are teaching us. Lord, I, I pray that you would give wisdom to your people. We know it begins with us, our willingness to look honestly at ourselves. We know that we need to choose. We need to choose to continue to grow in our faith and to invest in our culture, invest in others in a way that is respectful, in a way that is honoring, in a way, Lord, that we will be heard in order to change the culture and to change the world. Oh God, I pray for wisdom for us. 
I pray for strength for us. We pray against the powers and principalities of evil, the work of Satan and his fallen angels that want to destroy the church and destroy our nation and destroy our world. Father, I pray against it, and I pray, Lord, by the power of your spirit that you would protect our church, protect our community, protect our nation, protect our world. May we see transformation. May we see change for the kingdom of God and his values and his purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.